This is New Books and Political Science. My name is Keith Brown. Today, I will be speaking with Sarah Reckow, the author of Follow the Money, How Foundation Dollars Change Public School Politics. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Keith Brown, and today I have the pleasure to talk to the author of Follow the Money, How Foundation Dollars Change Public School Politics, Sarah Reckow. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Sarah, I've read the book and really enjoyed it. I don't know everything about uh, your background, so maybe before we get to actually talking about this interesting book, you can give a little bit about where you've been, where you are, and, and how this fits into the bigger picture of who you are. Sure. Uh, so I'm an assistant professor at Michigan State in the, in the Department of Political Science. Uh, I did my graduate work at Berkeley, uh, and that was where I first started to learn about some issues related to the topic that I pursued in this book. I did a study on small schools reform in Oakland that I was involved with with a faculty member and another grad student, and it was there that I first uh, really encountered the the large role that philanthropists were having in uh, the reforms that were going on in Oakland, and it really sparked my curiosity. Um. And, and I think this, you know, um, as, as academics, I think we all kind of feel like we, we know what, what foundations are, mm-hmm. um, because we've all filled out a request for funding <laughs> or, or something of this sort. Uh-huh. Um, but you obviously know a lot more about foundations. And so maybe before we can actually just get to sort of what your, your book does, you could just sort of briefly give us, so what is the foundation and, and why are they so central to policymaking in general? And then, you know, why is that, are they then the focus of this book of yours? Sure. Foundations are uh, nonprofit entities, and with, I mean, their definition in part is related to the way our tax code is set up. Uh, they uh, are a vehicle for giving charitable contributions um, that are tax exempt. So for a wealthy person like Bill Gates or Eli Broad, uh, it sets up a way for them to distribute the wealth that they've accumulated uh, that, you know, that's not subject to taxation. There are rules associated with that. They have to give away a certain amount of the endowment uh, on an annual basis in order to maintain their status. And they also have to report those funds to the IRS. That's actually how I'm able to collect the data that I have. And foundations do have a fairly uh, long-standing role in uh, policy and, in some respects, in the political process in the United States. Uh, you can go to Jack Walker's book on interest groups and see the role of patrons in helping to set up uh, the interest group community and our, our very vibrant civil society in the U.S. Um, and you can go back even further to Carnegie and Rockefeller and see how um, – how important a role uh, foundations have played in a variety of endeavors, research-related, but also policy and politics. Yeah, and so foundations have been around for a while, but it sure does seem like the argument you're making and the argument that, that others in this conversation are making is that the, the role they're playing is, is changing. And, and, you know, you, you write on page 60 um, that the dollars alone – do not account for the increasing foundation influence on education policy in each district. As grant-making has increased, funders have also converged Mm -hmm. on a set of grant recipients and shared funding strategies. So how exactly does this work? 
how does the foundation identify who and, and what it's going to fund, and how does then this convergence happening? Because each one of them is so considerable. That is the, the, the big foundation mm-hmm. that you refer to. Why and how do they converge around a set of issues or a, a set of ideas? What does that process look like? That's a great question. I would say that uh, I can speak to that primarily within education, the policy area that I, I've studied, and I, I wouldn't want to speak to it on a broader scale. But I, within education, um, I think it's an interesting story of kind of a response to what took place with the Annenberg Challenge in the 1990s, which was a very large philanthropic effort um, led by Walter Annenberg, the Annenberg Foundation. Uh, he gave uh, $500 million matching grants uh, for reform of schools. And much of the uh, postmortem of that uh, was fairly disappointing. Uh, people really felt that it didn't accomplish what one might expect with such a large uh, amount of money being invested. And many of the philanthropists who have become big education donors um, in the years since, including Bill Gates and Eli Broad, but also the Walton family, seem to have responded uh, with a similar set of priorities that have, I think, helped lead to the convergence where they're giving to many of the same grantees in many of the same places. And a few things they're responding to are they seem to be uh, less inclined to give directly uh, to public school systems or to give in ways that are intended to kind of gently nudge public school districts. Uh, they seem more, they're more focused on giving directly to organizations that compete with public schools, like charter schools, um, and more directly in an, in an advocacy-oriented way that's less nudging <laughs> And mm-hmm. a little more um, kind of outwardly advocating um, for particular uh, policy changes. Uh, so I'd say that that is a key uh, reason that the convergence has occurred is there's this um, similar kind of response to the disappointment of, of the Annenberg Challenge. Yeah, they, they definitely don't seem to nudge anymore. This is a... <laughs> There's a lot of, lot of pushing yeah. and, and some pulling as well. Your book focused on New York City and Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Why these two cities? Um, uh, there's some obvious reasons, but, but why did you choose them as the cases that you studied? Uh, well, they are the two largest school systems in the country, uh, which I guess makes them wonderful cases in some respects, but obviously makes them very unique. Uh, so there is there's a little bit of that challenge of uh, extrapolating from my findings to other places, but... Um, they're they're so important in their own right as as such such large school systems, um, both coasts. Um, but they're also very different, which makes them really interesting for comparing the dynamics of foundation grant making in two very different contexts. In New York City, you have mayoral control of the school district, and it's actually a, a particularly top-down form of mayoral control, more so, for example, than what you see in Washington, D.C., that also has mayoral control. On the other hand, Los Angeles uh, still has an, has an elected school board, uh, 
despite the fact that the, the mayor, Mayor Villaraigosa, tried to get mayoral control at one point. Uh, the, the school district is still governed with a traditional elected school board, which is how the vast majority of our 14,000 school districts in this country are governed. But among large urban school districts, quite a few are now under mayoral control in New York City, Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C. So that makes Los Angeles maybe slightly more unique amongst that group of districts. Yeah. And so... Um, this point you make about mayoral control isn't isn't just a passing one. This, in fact, is is very much at the the core of your your thesis. Mm-hmm. What why why might these foundations prefer to fund in these very um, highly centralized, um, top down, mayorally controlled uh, school systems? What does that connect to in their funding priorities? Because you would say, well, why would it matter um, at that highest level? For their funding, but but the case you make, it, it seems to be that 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 does matter to them. It is a it is a uh, around it is an issue that is around their their views of school reform. So why mayoral control? Mm-hmm. So I've drawn two uh, two sort of theories about that from the interviews I did and the analysis that I did, particularly on New York. Uh, and one is is an idea about disruption that. Uh, particularly when the governing system of the school district changes. And so when you uh, introduce mayoral control, which is what occurred in New York City in 2002, uh, or in Washington, D.C., when they shifted to a stronger form of mayoral control with Mayor Fenty. Uh, and I should add, actually, that in my analysis, while I focus on New York City with mayoral control, my broader analysis looks at mayoral and state control, Mm-hmm. have this similarity of, of kind of centralization, but also this moment of disruption that can occur. So the case I looked at in Oakland uh, was a, a state control uh, situation where the state took over the school district. And foundations seem to be attracted to that this this window of opportunity that can occur when, when that governance change happens. Uh, things are in flux. Uh, there's uh, this feeling that you can try to fairly quickly enact some policy changes that are that are opened <laughs> that mm-hmm. that can get pushed through that window of opportunity uh, caused by the disruption. On the flip side, um, some of the attraction to mayoral mayoral control, particularly, seems to come from uh, an expectation of stability. That that mayors, um, in contrast to school boards, are potentially a more stable political partner to work with. Um, school boards are, you know, perhaps they're, you know, you have different members being elected at different uh, electoral cycles, and maybe every two years you're getting some turnover on the board. It's more people to coordinate with uh, through a legislative body like that, uh, whereas the mayor is that that one person uh, who who the foundation may feel they can build more of a relationship with, and you have kind of the funny case of a few mayoral control cities that have had these multi-term mayors, um, such as Mayor Menino in Boston, which has mayoral control for for quite some time. Mayor Daly in Chicago, although obviously he is now uh, no longer the mayor, and and then Mayor Bloomberg in New York City. 
Um, those mayors, I think, have, even though they're, they're unique cases, each in their own right, I think they've added to the impression that mayoral control is this more stable uh, governing system. Right, right. And, and you know, this, this does raise um, and is sort of just not a benign, you know, impression on what would be the, the easiest way to solve these problems. There's this other side to it. And I thought one of the very interesting stories you tell is of this, um, this woman, Joan McKeever-Thomas, <laughs> which is this, you know, uh, deeply troubling and I think informative story. I wonder if you could just recount that story and, and what, what it tells you about the context of school reform in New York. Yeah, that was a fascinating interview I have. I still remember um, sitting across from her at a diner in Staten Island and mm-hmm. hearing this did, story. From how did you get to her? How did how did was she recommended or? So yes, I believe she was recommended by another source of mine, and I, I did start to read up and and I really wanted to interview um, some people who had been on who were on this panel for education policy in New York City, which is the the board that now exists under mayoral control, and um, unlike a traditional elected board, all the members are appointed. The majority are appointed by the mayor, but then five additional members are appointed by each of the borough presidents in New York City. So John McKeever Thomas was the uh, member who had been appointed by the Staten Island borough president, and uh, she was appointed right when the, the P, this panel for education policy was first created, um, right after mayoral control was instituted. Um, so she was on the original board. And she, she had this interesting story of how she started out with a lot of um, optimism and hope associated with the change that might be brought about with mayoral control, sort of being excited about the new chancellor, Joel Klein, who had been appointed by Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, I think he even called her early on in her uh, in her term. Um, but after serving on the board for a bit, uh, there was this policy that was proposed to get rid of social promotion for third grade and to tie um, advancement to uh, standardized tests um, for students to make it to the next grade level. And she described to me how she was really unsure about this policy and perhaps about some unintended consequences of what might um, happen for these students if um, if this was implemented. And she felt she wanted more evidence um, and more, more time to discuss and consider it. And she soon found that that was not, <laughs> that was not in line with the chancellor's agenda. He wanted this adopted and passed and and move on. And so after she had expressed her reservations um, prior to the meeting where they were going to have a vote, she uh, wound up checking her phone and hearing a message uh, from the Staten Island Borough President informing her that she should not, she would not need to go to the PEP, the the board meeting that night. Um, She went anyway, and she discovered that she had been replaced. Uh, by a new appointee, um, and she and there were a few other folks who had also expressed skepticism about this policy. They were all escorted uh, out <laughs> of the meeting, um, and that I think that reflects obviously that experience alone is is quite striking. But that reflects the the role that the panel for education policy has played in New York's narrow control system. They have never overturned a proposal 
um, advanced by the chancellor. It is quite purely a rubber stamp. So when HBO buys the rights to your book, have you thought about who might be cast as Joan <laughs> Thomas? Because this really is your sort of the, 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 the anecdote that, that drives at least the, the movie version of your story. And you can just, and I think that is, is one of the reasons why I think the book is, is really interesting is you're, the way in which you integrate these, these interviews that you've done. And, and it just really captures, um, in a certain way, you know, what, what, uh, what is at stake. And so I thought that really, it really did stick out, um, uh, in the book. Which also raises, in terms of your analysis, one of the uh, more theoretical points that you make uh, earlier in the book, where you, you say that there, um, and this is one of the questions that you're pursuing, is which actors are likely to lose influence mm-hmm. in this process. So uh, I wonder if you could step back and sort of think about who has who has won and, and who has lost, who has been advantaged in the school reform movement um, through these these much more active involvement of of large philanthropic foundations. And and who's who's lost out? Who's who's moved to the periphery? Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah, that's a key question. Um, and I'd say I would answer it slightly differently uh, for New York City and Los Angeles. Um, <clears throat> one thing that I think is common though across both cities is I think it would be fair to say that the teachers' unions in both places have uh, have lost some power and have in different ways, adjusted their uh, positions and approaches in response to the to the very much the changing policy and political environments in their district. And each union has <laughs> done this in slightly different ways. Um, in New York City, for a while, particularly when Randy Weingarten was uh, leading the union there, they negotiated quite a bit. Uh, with the district leadership. Um, this was on issues like uh, uh, an experiment with merit pay for the teachers. <coughs> um, in Los Angeles, the union for a while was taking quite uh, an oppositional stance, especially on the issue of charter schools, and that seemed to just continually um, alienate them in relation to um, school board members and other political players. I mean, there was this remarkable article in the LA Times at one point where a school board member just completely dismissed the UTLA as a political force in the district. I don't think they would say the same thing now, especially after the, the primary election that just occurred, but there, it was actually at the point where the uh, board members were willing to say the UTLA was, was nothing like the the force that it has been in the past. Um, but UTLA is also adjusting, I think, in a somewhat more bottom-up way. <coughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> From members mm-hmm. who, are, uh, <coughs> who are willing to change their um, – <coughs> I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, no. And, and maybe I could just, just sort of follow up <laughs> just for a second. And what? And so, so we have this set of, of – um, not losers, but those that – whose influence has been pushed, um, certainly not what it has been in the past. But there's there's this other group out there um, who in some ways have been advantaged, at least their perspectives. And so um, you, you've mentioned uh, the uh, charter schools being advantaged, but there's, in a larger way, this uh, business-oriented approach to school management as, a, as an idea and a concept has 
has um, gotten a lot of foundation support and has been a priority. Um, how does, are there any examples that sort of that, that, um, that explain how that is, why foundations may have taken up this, this more business-oriented uh, view of school reform than, than has been in the past? Yeah, um, I think that's often attached to the, uh, the heads of the foundations that you have um, individuals like Bill Gates and Eli Broad who are very successful in business and in different ways seem to um, view the opportunities for school reform through the lenses of ways that they were successful as entrepreneurs. Um, you can really see it with Eli Broad who puts this <coughs> who puts a great emphasis on leadership um, in the various programs of the Broad Foundation, and especially non-traditional leadership, so attracting people from the private sector into roles in school districts. Um, and that seems to come fairly directly from his own experience as the leader of a business. But I'd say it goes beyond sort of those individual personalities um, because, in some sense, once the organizational infrastructure starts to be built around these approaches what, uh, that are either more market-oriented, like charter schools or alternative certification programs or alternative principal leadership programs, that may attract people from outside the education sector into education, you've built a new organizational infrastructure that then other funders can grant to as well. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And now you see many of the largest grantees are these, these organizations that, that have a more market-oriented approach, and they're, they're getting grants from a wide spectrum of foundations, um, not just Gates and Broad. Yeah, this book has so much in it, and there, we haven't even touched on a number of the big uh, analytical pieces of it. Um, but I want to encourage everyone to, to go out and try to read the uh, Follow the Money, How Foundation Dollars Change Public School Politics. This is published in 2000, uh, 2013 from Oxford University Press. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you very much for having me.